0: Hello, and welcome to the Wild Blue Podcast, perspectives on aviation lives, lifestyles, and
1: business. Hi, uh, this is Chris Kirk at Wild Blue Aircraft Sales, and welcome to the Wild Blue Podcast, where we discuss perspectives on aviation, lifestyles, and business. And uh, today we're talking with Max Swindell, and Mac is uh, one of our sales advisors here at Wild Blue. So welcome, Mac, and thanks for agreeing to do this.
0: You bet. I'm excited.
1: Yeah, yeah, me too. So uh, if you would, just uh, just start off giving everybody a little bit of your background and your history, who you are.
0: Well, I live in Oklahoma and uh, grew up here. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. Professionally, I guess, the uh, my career sort of taken a full circle. I started out in aviation, went to Oklahoma State, got my license, private certificate there while I was a student, and then went to work for Boeing in Wichita, which is now Spirit. Um, but as an engineer, transferred back to Oklahoma City um, with Boeing still, kind of moved over to the defense side. So started out right after school in the in aviation, aerospace, um, went to Gulfstream after that. We had a factory. Gulfstream had a, had a facility, a, a, an assembly facility uh, on the south end of Wiley Post Airport down in, in Bethany. Um, right. And then had an opportunity to join a, a new venture in early in 2000, it was in February of 2000. Right. Uh, it was a brand-new company involved in telemedicine. And if you think about where we were in 2000 in telemedicine, there was a lot of work to do. Broadband was not available. Um, we, we really got involved in a lot of details technically to connect remote sites with uh, medical specialists at a distant location and uh, create a network that was reliable and consistent and delivered a good product. So I was – actually, that kind of took me over into healthcare for – and I guess it was probably 12 or 13 years um, and had a chance to actually start a company with uh, some radiologists. But we, we really set up a, a teleradiology group, kind of a virtual practice, so to speak, um, with a group of radiologists that were primarily in the national capital area. These were military radiologists that had the opportunity to, to provide this service to rural hospitals primarily, but also some uh, some larger community hospitals and even some metropolitan hospitals after hours uh, leveraging our technology. We based the company in D.C. I stayed in Oklahoma. Um, it was really pretty cool. We had, uh, I think we had five or six probably at the height of that startup. Um, we had five or six radiologists that were all in the Army in Hawaii. There was a six-hour time difference that we were able to leverage uh, between the East Coast and Hawaii. So it worked out really, really well and was a lot of fun. And um, in the course of all that, when I started in the healthcare sector, the company I went to work for was a startup, had, had a couple of airplanes and I was a pilot, you know, had gotten my license at Oklahoma state, like I said, and, uh, had added an instrument rating somewhere in the course of living life and, uh, had a couple of airplanes that were company cars. So, you know, we traveled over a five state area. There were three of us in the company, all pilots. And traveled over a five-state area with our with our airplanes that were based at Wiley Post, um, and that's really when I when I really started to appreciate and develop the. At least the the lifestyle, you know, the comfort level, the the mo uh, of using an airplane to really expand our right. reach, and it became a became a daily thing.
1: Yes. did Did you have remind me because I don't remember? Did you have your license before you went to Oklahoma State?
0: I got it at Oklahoma State. So as it was my senior year. Um, you know, I grew up in I grew up in northeastern Oklahoma. It's a small town. Cushing is where I grew up, and uh, I was a kid in the '70s. And if if you're familiar with general aviation, you know that the peak general aviation manufacturing year was 1979. So '70s were a great, great time for piston-powered airplanes, and and uh, I had a lot of friends, families that had airplanes, and flew around with a lot of them as a kid growing up. And it's something I always wanted to do. So. Um, when I got to Oklahoma State, they had a real active program. The Flying Aggies were there, great student organization, and uh, took ground school as a, as a three-hour course. And uh, my practical flight instruction um, I took as a course as well, which was, uh, I think, a two- or three-hour course. I did that my, my senior year that I was there.
1: But so you didn't have anybody really in your family that uh, kind of sparked the, the desire to learn how to fly.
0: It was just friends, dads, you know, really, you know, with uh, would hundred dollar hamburger trips, you know, yeah. on Tuesday night, things like that. I remember flying over when I was, man, I probably was fourth or fifth grade. Uh, a guy that uh, worked with my mom at a refinery that was there in Cushing, had a little 150 and just gotten yeah. his lessons and took me along for a ride along over to Stillwater to pick up some charts, you know, that kind of stuff. And I, that's really where it, where it came from.
1: Yeah. If I remember right, Cushing is, uh, when I fly over it, it's the place that's got all the oil tanks. Out there that's just correct,
0: that. right. It's hard to miss.
1: Just right and there it, along it I-44?
0: It's just north of I-44, just southeast of Stillwater. It's got all those storage tanks and skydivers on the weekends.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. I remember seeing that on the sectional. So, uh, And one thing interesting here for, for folks to know is that MAC is in, uh, you're actually just outside of Edmond, close to Sundance Airport in Piedmont, right? Right. And uh, so the rest of us are here in Kansas City, so he, he does operate a little bit remotely. And uh, the Zoom thing or uh, Google Meet, whatever we use, isn't really anything new for us. Uh, we've been doing it for, for quite a while. But uh, Todd and Tavi and I are here in Kansas City. Mac's down there. But we still get to see each other fairly frequently. In fact, Mac and I were just talking uh, before we started recording here that we'll probably see each other next week when I take my plane down to Enid to be worked on. And, and Mac does some flying out of Enid. And so maybe you could, we could segue right into that from, you know, how, what the tie-in is with Enid.
0: Sure. Um, I, I do fly uh, a Pilatus that's an Enid that uh, there's, I guess, five or six companies that are involved in that airplane. And, and, you know, all of those companies that are based, domiciled right here in Oklahoma, based are right in Enid, family-owned businesses for the most part. Um, recognized many years ago. Matter of fact, one of them uh, is an insurance company there needed they've had a bonanza or a Baron in the family in the business since 1947. They actually had a beach uh, Model 17 Staggerwing prior to that that uh, the owner of the company, which was the grandfather of the of the brothers that run the company now, uh, he was flying back from a meeting in Northwestern Oklahoma and the airplane caught on fire. And uh, he successfully landed it, got out of it. But his first call was to Walter Beach uh, asking about a metal airplane uh, because that airplane was burning up around him as he was making that emergency landing. And that was in 1947 when the Bonanza was brand new. He bought one. Um, It's really, really a pretty cool story, and they've had a number of them since then. So I I fly their Bonanza from time to time and then a Pilatus that they're involved in as well. And, you know, I think where I was going with that is they have learned that being based in Enid, um, general aviation is a, is a real asset to them because they, they really can extend their reach. And, and even some of those folks travel internationally, and we use the Pilatus as sort of that uh, connection for them to make it uh, very
1: workable um, to connect with an international flight, typically at DFW. Yeah. So you've got some, you've got some very good practical experience um, on, and history on how a general aviation airplane whether it's been your own um, or through folks who are flying piston airplanes or now who are flying turboprop airplanes and, and how they can really um, impact really their bottom line, I guess, at, at the end of the day. And that's what they're probably looking for, isn't it?
0: It is. And, you know, living where I live in Oklahoma, I, I feel very blessed. We live in a great part of the country where the weather is, is very accommodating um, pretty much year-round. There's very few days that um, – we feel like we can't go for one reason or another. but And I learned that when we were working, when I was based there at Wiley Post with the tele, telemedicine startup, um, we had a turbocharged 310 R model uh, that we could take. We also had a mall and I was in a flying club that had all Cessna fleet. So it's, I mean, nothing terribly exotic, it's single engine airplanes, but you know we were able to extend our reach with three, with three guys. Um, we had clients that were just a few hours away, uh if need be to be able to respond to make a hot shot kind of run, you know, into Arkansas. I, I I remember one of the one of the coolest stories really experiences was uh you know we we had some equipment that um that was in El Paso that was failing. We received a call at probably ten o'clock in the morning. We're coming up on a fourth of July holiday weekend and yeah. and it was, you know, mission critical that this stuff be up and running over that holiday weekend. And uh wasn't any big thing to scramble, you know, right then and there at that moment. Uh, I think I went to Subway and grabbed a sandwich and had some other guys get the airplane ready to go. And by the time I got back to the hangar, it was fueled and ready to go. I had a flight plan on the system, took off, um, was two and a half hours or so uh, on out to El Paso, got the equipment up and running. I grabbed a little dinner, was home by Letterman, you know, and just being able to do that um, and respond that way the clients obviously very much appreciate that. And, uh, I think it, 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 it grows our bottom line because kind of, there's that goodwill factor. There's the, there's the response, but we're, but we can do that without adding people. And so with three wow. guys, we were able to cover a lot of ground and that's, I did the same thing when we started the teleradiology group. Uh, I had a bonanza based right out here from Oklahoma and I was able to cover an awful lot of ground. So from a Development standpoint, you know, I could call on a lot of prospects and see existing accounts. We had, we had accounts scattered out across the Southwest and New Mexico and Oklahoma, um, and in South and North Dakota, as well as the Mid-Atlantic. Um, so from here in Oklahoma, you know, I could very easily make a, a one or two
1: day trip in the Dakotas and and, and accomplish a lot of work. Did you have a radius that you were working within that you tried to? You say, hey, beyond this this radius, it's probably cheaper, or maybe even more efficient to go commercially, uh, or was it strictly on a customer by customer, or you know, case by case basis?
0: Kind of a case by case basis. I know when I had the bonanza and was using that, and had had uh, had the opportunity, and it was not so much responding to a crisis as it was just calling on clients and and engaging in richer dialogue face-to-face than I ever could remotely, um, as well as, as, you know, prospecting. I sort of treated, it was kind of a break-even, really, if I operated within a 700 or so m- nautical mile radius. And it was pretty easy to, do, to run those numbers, considering some of the places I was going. Uh, I already mentioned South Dakota. Uh, yeah. Well, you, could, you could burn up a lot of time trying to get there con- with connecting flights and that sort of thing. Um, generally speaking, you know, if I'm flying myself to go out in, into the, uh, in, into my territory, I could always shave off an, an added another day in a hotel, another day of a rental car. Uh, and I could drop straight into the, to the locale that I was trying to go as, as opposed to having to land, especially if you consider the, you know, the Southwestern part of the country. Um, if you look at airline scheduled airline service, it's quite common to land somewhere and then have another three or four hour drive ahead of you just to get to go see the client. And, you know, that was never the case with an airplane. But in addition to that, you know, even going to the mid Atlantic and the East coast, if I did a pure cost benefit using the Bonanza versus an airline ticket, as soon as I added a second stop, the Bonanza won every time. Um, Yeah. And that's, and that's just because, you know, I could add a, a number of stops along the way. And I, you know, we had, one of our, session, our, one of our physicians was, uh, was stationed in Pensacola for a while, and I remember flying out to uh, Leesburg in the National Capital area and then dropping down to Pensacola to spend some time with him, uh, doing some planning for the business. And, you know, the airline ticket, the three-way with three legs in it, was terribly expensive. Uh, the Bonanza was 60% maybe of the cost.
1: Really? Bonanza, really? It
0: was significant.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's – honestly, that's fairly – rare because it generally is cheaper to, to fly commercially, but it doesn't always make sense at the end of the day because of what you're saying, you know, because of the, the connections, the sit around time, the drive time right. um, and, and all those things. And, and so it's, I, I get a big kick out of the customers that we work with and the, the uses that they have for these airplanes, because so many of our customers come from places where, you know, airline service, uh, it, it's, it's a ways off. They've got to drive. they got to get in their car and drive an hour or two or three just to get to a, a decent sized airport where they can, you know, start, a, start their trip, not to mention have to make their connection. And so it's, uh, you know, th- these are, to me, these are kind of the movers and shakers of, of mm-hmm. our economy because they're the ones that are out there making things happen. You know, they don't come from the big cities. They're not, they're not traveling to the big cities. I mean, go through them commercially, but, but you know, not, uh, not necessarily doing any business there. So,
0: Well, and that's a good point. You know, my responsibilities, and that's a great case study for it, is, is when we had the teleradiology group. I mean, my responsibilities were financial. My responsibilities were operations. My, finan- uh, my responsibilities included uh, development. And, you know, travel time is not revenue-generating productive time. So right. just being able to move around a lot quicker, and uh, not burn so much time in between endpoints. I think that that made it work. You know, we would we would have had to hire at least two or three more people, in my view, if I hadn't had the airplane to use to just move around quicker.
1: Yeah. Well, and you know, we are we are blessed being here in the central U.S., where it's it's relatively easy for us to go just about anywhere. Uh, in the country in a pretty short amount of time. We don't necessarily, even, even commercially, we don't have to necessarily make a connection, but you know, if you're, if you're in a location where you're two hours from the nearest major airport and you can get in your airplane. And even if you're doing, you know, maybe it's only 170 knots true, maybe not even that fast. And you can sit in that airplane for four hours. Uh, and you can get, a, you can, you can cover some serious territory. Absolutely. And that's great. So Moving back to what you're doing um, with the Pilatus, how far do you see, what, what kind of range are you guys using this thing?
0: Well, again, it's a, it's a great airplane for what we do. And, you know, I, I monitor on a monthly basis sort of what the moving average, what the, what the typical trip looks like. And, and by right. far, the majority of what we do is within a couple of hours out. Um, but, you know, being based right here in the center part of the country in North Central Oklahoma, that we can easily hit either coast nonstop. And so, uh, you know, a, a common trip on the coast might include, you know, a trip to D.C. or a trip to uh, pick, a, pick a location in North Carolina. We go to the West Coast fairly often. We'll make a trip to Phoenix. We'll make a trip to San Diego, uh, the L.A. area. That's easily done nonstop. Uh, more commonly, we have trips to uh, Denver, Kansas City, uh Multiple locations in Iowa, Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, the southeast, um, very very easy uh, day trips you know a couple couple hours out a couple hours back with plenty of, plenty of time and uh, to take care of the business that we're there to do and get back the same day and and arrive not only at the destination but back home without the without the feeling of any kind of fatigue.
1: yeah and, and elaborate a little bit if you would what what's the what generation of Pilatus are we talking about here?
0: The Pilatus that I fly is a, it's a it's a NG, so it's a serial number sixteen ten for anybody that's paying attention to that to those numbers. But it's a PC twelve slant forty seven. So it's got yeah. the got the Honeywell Apex system, PFDs, MS, MFDs.
1: Yeah. So transition a little bit then into the background that you've got, which I think is is very unique in that you know you you have a lot of formal aviation training. Um, you've gone in different directions, but aviation has always been kind of at the, the core of what you've been involved in in, in some way. Um, how do you translate that or what, what, what benefit is there with that experience to the folks that we deal with, you know, the, the buyers or the sellers of an airplane?
0: Well, I think I can – understand somewhat maybe more than just empathize you know with who are who i perceive our, our client base to be and and that is uh, uh owner flown business owner with a lot of irons in the fire a lot of commitments a lot of things going on um, i certainly can appreciate that time is time is valuable time is money and you know i remember when i was contemplating buying the bonanza how my burning desire i was just away from home when we were starting that business and and I did not have the bonanza to fly. I was spending many, many nights away from home. And I think that was the one thing that was really driving me was the desire to spend more nights in my home um, with my family. And my kids were pretty young back then. Um, you know, the, the airplane is what it's the tool that allows you to really compress, to shrink, to shrink the range, to shrink the world and be able to get home uh, uh, more nights than than you might otherwise be able to and get back to your office where you can really get some things done if, if you need to.
1: Yeah. I think about one of our customers who has a uh, municipal engineering firm and he's told me multiple times that one of the ways he's able to retain his employees, not are, not only are they in a, in a somewhat remote location to begin with, but it's because, you know, those, those employees all have families Right. They uh, they all have people that they want to get back to, you know. For those of us who have spent more nights than we care to count in a hotel, one hotel after a while becomes just like the next. And the last thing you want to do is spend another night not in your own bed. And they keep their employees very happy, you know, doing that. So, right. so if, if you were to put a put a, a label on it or a, a pin on it, you know, what, what kinds of companies – what kinds of companies do you think are um, the uh, the best suited, or maybe not? You know, I mean, there's companies out there that shouldn't have an airplane, right? So, what what's your perspective on you know where does the type of general aviation flying that you've been used to fall in? Where 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 would that be best suited for for a, an up and coming company?
0: That's that's a good question. You know, I think it would it takes a it. It takes a, a, well, what's the word? It's just coming to terms with the fact that airplanes are not for everyone. And it comes to, and you've got to have an appreciation for the environment in which we're operating. Um, you know, as, as we're speaking, I'm thinking about even those times I've been tempted, they've got to get their itis, they got to get home itis kind of thing. You, yeah. you just have to, you have to establish, you have to be of the mindset and you have to respect um, the parameters within which we operate. And you just have to commit at the outset, um, to not operate that way and, and put plenty of safeguards in place and respect, um, the rules and the protocols that you develop even personally so that you don't find yourself in a pickle in a, in a situation of high risk that you're not comfortable to be in, um, you know, weather being the, prim- the primary mover, I guess, the primary factor as we think about that. So we do have, we are in a, in a place in the country that's blessed with, with good weather and good airspace and accommodating airspace. Uh, but we're in the time of the year now when you know, there's a lot of convective weather that's moving around. So, right. you know, when I started flying sort of the way I'm doing now, um, would have been close to 20 years ago, we did not have weather in the cockpit like we do now. I mean, it's so much better now. Yeah. Um, to be able to have, it's really, really, it's great. But, you know, it used to be, um, you know, you'd take a look at the radar, maybe get a briefing, you know, before you leave. But then once you're in the airplane, you're operating on what you looked at, you know, 20 or 30 minutes ago. And right, that's still valuable because you can still look, in that, look at that and understand what the, uh, what the trends are, what the patterns are, what the, what's where the movement is headed, um, because even with uh, some of the next rad weather imagery, that kind of imagery that we can have in the cockpit now, there's still some delay unless you have live radar on the airplane. Um, to answer the question, I, I think the people that uh, that really appreciate general aviation and the functionality and the leverage that it brings are those that are probably fiercely independent and really, really, really care, take take a very personal stake in, in the product that they're putting out and the customer and and the customer base and the people that they serve. Um, You know, I, I, those are all noble, noble things. And, you know, it's nice to think that all companies would do that, but I'm talking about the ones that just really take a personal stake in that and and want to want to maintain some kind of physical touch as frequently as they can. Sure. Um, And, you know, I think, For the company that we were, the teleradiology group, you know, it was the the bonanza. I mean, it's just a bonanza, but it was a great tool for me. And, you know, we recognized pretty rapid development. So we were in that development mode. We were growing the business and, uh, you know, just having that capability accelerated our development. There's no doubt about it because, again, I was able to cover a lot of ground that would typically require multiple people to do.
1: Yeah. You know, you, you touched on a really interesting point, and that is um, you've got pretty independent people, uh, mm-hmm. people that are, um, you know, they, they, these are folks generally, a lot of the folks that we work with, and, and I, it, I think it probably includes all of us as well, you know, we want to get out there and we want to make things happen, and uh, we don't like typically sitting on our hands, and that's all fine and dandy until it comes sometimes to the operation of aircraft. And you have to recognize that tendency uh, in your own personality and tame that somehow, whether it's handing the reins off to somebody else to do the flying or to having a strict and rigid set of operating rules that you abide by regardless of how desperately you want to get home that night or get to see that customer that day. Right. And, uh, and that's, really a, that's really a good point. You, you actually gave me an idea. You know, I don't know about you. You, you, you probably do, but I've got actually a, for my general aviation flying, I've got a, a, li- a written list of maybe, I don't know, it's 10 or 12 things that are my personal minimums. So when I'm flying my airplane, for example, um, you know, I, it's single engine airplane. I, I, I don't mind flying IFR, but my personal min is, is that if I don't have basic VFR mins on departure or, or the forecast for arrival, I won't go. So 1,003. Now that doesn't mean the weather's might go down. Okay. But I'm not going to put myself in a situation in a single engine airplane where I'm forcing myself to shoot a precision approach on the other end. You know, the, another thing is, is I won't fly any more than a total of nine hours a day. Um, and I won't fly after 11 o'clock at night because I know my body well enough right. that, you know, uh, at nine 30, I'm ready to go to bed, much less 11. So I, you give me an idea there. And I think those are some things that we should be sharing more with our customers, uh, when we sell particularly and just say, Hey, do these with, you know, whatever you want. But these are just some lessons that we've learned.
0: Well, and I, th- I think so as I think about it and as we talk about it, I think another thing to consider is, you know, I learned er- learned early, early on and I, it was likely in an, a, uh, Accident investigation class that I was in, I learned that you know those those accidents that we read about and hear about that make the media um, by far the majority of those occurred after a series of events took right. place um, yep. that, that were responded to in one one way or another. Um, it's rarely one issue. It's it's rarely one link in the chain that causes something to hit the headlines. So you know answer that another answer to that question who's the who's the right candidate to consider a general aviation airplane or even you know uh, an airplane that they use in business well it's got to be a customer that does not underestimate and can't afford the time and the resource that has the resources to to take care of the airplane and to take care of the proficiency of whoever's flying it whether it's the owner or if, whether it's a hard pilot um, and that's you know that's a different answer you know for for whoever it, for everybody, it depends on the airplane, depends on the pilot, depends on the frequency of the flight. Uh, but you know, it, it, we, we run into airplanes, you know, in the business we're in, we, we we run into air, we encounter airplanes that that people have had, uh, that they had great intentions in when they purchased it and something changed and you know, that little things crop up and maintenance items become deferred and that's just something that you can do. I mean, as soon as that starts to happen, as soon as that becomes a pattern, well, that's, that's uh, at least something to to recognize and it requires mitigation at least at minimum.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. So, um, you know, given those, those minimums and those situations we've gotten ourselves into, I'll put, put you on the spot here. Um, do you have some personal story or, uh, anecdote of, of a situation, you know, flying, maybe it was for business, um, that look back on and say, man, I should have never allowed myself to get there.
0: You know, there's, there's probably a few of those, but there's one that's head and shoulders above and it, it's a, it's a great one. You know, it's a, I was flying the, that twin Cessna, it was a, that R model turbocharged 310 and I had two other guys on the airplane with me. All three of us were pilots, two of us flew it. Uh, but all three were pilots and, and uh, we were on a routine trip. We went to a place down in Northeast Texas that we spent a lot of time in. We were there generally back in, during that area, we we would spend at least a day or two a week uh, in that town and taking care of that customer in Northeast Texas. Mm-hmm. So we knew the, the route very, very well. Um, it was actually on my mind as I was discussing how nice it is to have the weather in the cockpit that we have now, because at that time we did not. So, you know, what we looked at before we left was the weather, the radar depiction, you know, on the monitor in the flight planning room at the FBO before we left. And we saw that it looked pretty nasty, but we had a, we had a good airplane that could get high if we needed to. Um, but it was, a, it was a line of thunderstorms that were developing along a frontal boundary. And I'm, so I'm traveling from northeastern Texas back to Oklahoma City. Um, this, the right side, the northeast side of this line extended well up in, around Chicago so way 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 up there and the left end was oh I don't recall somewhere down around Abilene maybe so you know dipped away on down into Texas it would have been a it would have been a long trip to go around the end of it and you know thunderstorm tops they can really develop and blow up yeah really really high a lot higher than the service ceiling of that even though it was a turbocharged airplane. A lot higher than that airplane could go, um, so we all elected together. It was at the end of the day, so we had spent the day uh, there working, and we were we were flying home. It was at the end of the day. And I think it probably helped that they were pilots, but maybe not. <laughs> uh, but we elected that we would go take a look. It was still there was still some daylight, and we approached. Uh, we we sort of took this thing head on. We were going to look for a place, a gap that we could shoot. You know, there there were still some on the radar. You know, when we looked at it. And we got to got up to it where we could see it, and um, you know those gaps had all closed up. The vertical development had increased, and it was getting really, really tall. Uh, but we could see sunlight on the ground below it. So we okay. all looked at it and thought, "Well, it's not too far across there. I bet we can make it." Uh, so we jumped down. I was flying I was in the left seat. We jumped down and went underneath it. And man. That was the worst ride in an airplane I've ever experienced. And by the time we got to the other side, when we could look back with the light from the West shining on what we just flew under, we all vowed that we would never do that again. We saw some colors that you don't really like to see and you don't often see in weather, uh, some kind of dark cobalt purple kind of colors that were pretty nasty, impressive, magnificent, but not <laughs> on the window of an airplane.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we've all been in uh, situations like that, especially as, as you get to be, uh, you know, our young and youthful age and, uh, you know, get to that breadth of experience. And, and uh, you know, sometimes it's not just one or two of those situations, you know, it's it's multiple of them as different scenarios present themselves. And like you said earlier, so many of those are because of a chain of events and it's recognizing and mitigating those things early on. So,
0: but. Well, and that, you know, I, I think the lessons learned played out just maybe a year or so ago when I had a trip in the Pilatus to take a group of guys to Colorado. And um, we had exactly the same kind of setup, a, a frontal boundary moving down our way and big, nasty thunderstorms, even in the early part of the day that we're building along those lines and along that line. We could have, and the, and the Pilates, airplane's faster, we could have gone around one end of it. but. I just advised them that there was no way that the ride was going to be a good ride. Um, and we still had to plan, you know, a a return trip later that same day. And it was, you know, the forecast call for more of the same throughout the day. And I advised that we really just ought to look for a different day. And in the end, um, it really worked out well because we, we found another day when the weather was great, had a great trip. And we were actually able to take another airplane and take more people on that second day. So it was a
1: much more productive trip by waiting. Right. Right. Well, that's, that's a great story. And thank you. And you know, it's, I'm sitting here looking at the clock and realize how quickly our conversation has gone. And I wanted to kind of uh, honor our time commitment on this, but thanks for taking the time to, to share all that. And, and I think uh, for, you know, for anybody that's watching this, I, I, you know, there's lots to learn. Mac's got a lot of wisdom. He's got a lot of experience, a uh, lot of stories to tell. And, um, you know, that's, that all comes not only with age, but with dedication to your profession. And one of the differences that I, I hope that you see with Mac here in terms of buying or selling airplanes is that we're not just in it for the buying and the selling. We We, we love and we are enthralled with the the entire aspect of aviation. We love learning. And so, uh, you know, that's what this podcast is about, is about not just uh, buying and selling, but it's about lifestyles and the lives and and businesses and how you can use those airplanes and and just as a couple of examples. So anyway, Mac, thanks so much. Really, uh, really good spending this time with me. Enjoyed it. All right. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to the Wild Blue Podcast. Find us online at flywildblue.com. And don't forget to subscribe and share.